Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cast of Call, where we talk all things related to the Dark Tower series by Stephen King. I'm your co-host, Rachel, and joining me is the other half of my cotet, the man who stays busy. You don't have to get busy if you stay busy. <laughs> the one and only DJ. I mean, uh, as my Facebook feed shows you the exhaustive amount of projects that I continually take on. <laughs> it is madness, my friend. Madness. Every I'm week, impressed. at least two I'm or impressed. three things. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is I have like a ton of projects going, but they're like relatively small. You're like, I'm doing major construction on my house. <laughs> like out of like no pre-discussion, just like one day you're like submit mixing or like it's crazy. It's well, I'm, I'm impressed. Yeah, I'm I mean, like, I, I got little what, projects too. How much too. crack are you on? Like, how do you have this kind of energy? Like, I'm writing an album uh, for my next door neighbor to sing to because she always wanted to sing in an album. Oh my gosh, DJ! <laughs> and then I'm building guitar uh, pedals on the side. Um, I have a, uh, a book that I'm helping to edit for one of the guys that goes to my bar. So I'm like reading through his PDF to tr- try and give him pointers on where his people in the desert should go. And make it a little less biblical. You're editing your movie because yep. I saw you were burning DVDs. Yep, I've been working. Today. I forgot. I was uh, also yeah doing editing with Matt, uh, creating uh, the Blu-rays for our latest feature film, and then I'm building a deck. Um, also, a uh, <laughs> hundred trips to Home Depot and uh, I planted a garden. So now I have strawberries uh, and a couple of fruit trees going. And yeah, just uh, continuous Madness. continuous Madness. work all the time. <laughs> oh my goodness well i'm glad we were able to pull you away from that long enough hopefully this like at least forces you to sit down and focus on one thing for like a minute which maybe is nice i don't know hopefully <laughs> fingers crossed <laughs> i multitask i'm like reading the book or listening to the book and then working yeah. on something else at the exact same time <laughs> all right so moving all right on. moving on from my neuroses let's talk about our plan for this episode so we're going to kick off the show with an in-depth conversation about wizard and glass part three come rape chapter 10 beneath the demon moon 2 sections 14 through 27 which will essentially end the story within a story so this is the 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 final climactic scene and then i have a listener question out on the facebook page but i got a late start so i'm gonna wait and see when we get to the end of the show if people have had a chance to respond if not we'll hold it to the next episode but we may or may so we may or may not be closing out with a listener question which is all my fault sorry about that but the good news is if that's the case, then we'll just announce what the question was, and people who maybe even aren't on the Facebook will get an opportunity to write in if they want. Anyway, before we get into all that, DJ, can you please do myself and the listeners and the world at large a major solid and remind them about our spoiler policies? Well, guys, um, well, guys I have a bucket go. of red paint here, oh, and uh, no! if, if I'm about to dip your hands in it, and rub them across the ground, screaming Charu Tree. That is the warning <laughs> that we are about to cross the spoiler zone. And when the blank eyes of all your friends, neighbors, and that girl you taught how to ride in high school are staring at you, you will know that it is time to step away from the podcast so that you don't get burned by a spoiler zone. 
that one is their darkest and yet most appropriate one yet. <laughs> Get burned. <laughs> By the spoiler zone. Man, we are going to go some dark places today. I, I, we were talking before we started recording about how you remembered the end of the book differently, and we'll get there. But you had, in the process, fed me false hope. <laughs> <laughs> you like had sort of gaslit me out of my own memory of the book, and I was like, maybe I remembered wrong. No. <laughs> well, I. So here's the thing. Um, you mentioned Romeo and Juliet enough in that this narrative in my mind sort of like stuck and i don't know if like that was subconscious or if i always remembered it this way but i thought susan's ending ended a little differently than we find out here and so i do want to discuss that and then i kind of want to throw it at you to see if that would have been a better option than the ending that we get because I feel like the one I had written in my mind as the true ending is is a little bit, is a bit more uh, Stephen King sadistic and like interesting than how this is. I'll tell you what, DJ, because this is a spoiler kind of conversation, why don't we save that discussion for our extended episode and we can go deep with that? All right. All right. I see what you did there. That's, that's uh, some good workout. Producer Rachel. <laughs> All right, so you uh, you ready to cover this? Yeah, tell me, where did we leave off? All right, so we left off with uh, Susan captured and, uh, you know, her aunt and, uh, and the wicked witch of the town ready to take her to task. And uh, they've talked all the townspeople into Charu Tree and, uh, you know, dark <gasps> things are coming. Uh, meanwhile, <laughs> Roland and the gang... I've just busted into the middle of this ring of uh, tanker movers, and uh, all of these uh, guys in Latigo's gang are just hanging out, confused. They've played their way in like they were just some local boys asking for questions that are part of the gang, and where do I go, guys, and how do I get there? And then, bam, they whip out the guns and just blow the crap out of everything. Yeah, they do. And it's not just a little bit like... There's a point where uh, uh, Keithbert has a uh, a machine gun, and like Elaine, Elaine has or, oh machine Elaine gun. has yeah. a machine gun. Excuse me, and Elaine's like, okay, remember everything I got about machine guns? Like move slow and even even paced as I slide across, you know. And then like he's firing and he's firing and he blows up a tanker and like the description of the tanker is like this this uh, uh, giant beast with uh, black holes everywhere. <laughs> Yeah. And, and like when they runs out of bullets, he's like, but I want to blow up another one. <laughs> I kind of love it. Like that is that is when you're like, oh, right. He's 14. Of course, he's juicy. He wants to make him bigger. He wants to blow some more shit up. Yeah. And like you can um, you can sort of throughout the description of, of this through uh, through the whole battle. It's like even um, when when they're shooting slingshots with fireworks off, they're like, yeah, that started stuff on fire, but it did too good of a job. And then Latigo, <laughs> like, and he's like, so I guess I don't get to shoot any more fireworks off here. And like Latigo to his unfortunate credit, basically put all of these tankers a little too close together. Yeah. And he did. Because of that, like one goes, the next goes, the next goes. And like Roland and the gang are just basically able to shoot the crap out of everybody. And take out swaths of these people Mm -hmm. and all the tankers. So, like, that's bad. And then Roland calls his rallying cry and says, all right, let's go, guys. And, like, 
Latigo plays right into it. And, and it's funny because like there's a there's a small scene where um Latigo's men, some of them aren't like picking up and going as fast as they should. And he just points to one guy and he's like, You with the gun, shoot him. Yeah. <laughs> and like so he just shoots a random guy. <laughs> and then that guy like being shot is what brings everybody to attention to mm-hmm. get on your saddle and get going. Man, it's crazy. Anyway, yeah. uh, so I've I've mixed up probably three That's okay. chapters so far. Um, That's okay. Do you, you want to circle back for any of that? And I do, I do. I want to. I don't. Ha- yeah, I have a few things to say about all three of those sections, and I'll just slam them all together because it's not a ton. So it's interesting though that we start this ch- this section, I guess, this chapter, this reading with Elaine essentially saying that what's about to happen doesn't really matter. Which is, you know, as your final climactic scene in a book, or, you know, a story within a story in this case, is, is an interesting choice. But Elaine kind of makes it clear that they don't, the only reason, now that they, the tower is kind of their cause, the only reason they're even going to go through with this is because it's just sort of like gunslinger principle. Mm-hmm. And it made me think about how when Jonas found Cuthbert's Brook, like it was that training and that tradition of just you finish the job essentially rather than a desire to do so that allowed him to find it. And uh, in the same way, it allows them to basically take out Farson's plan really easy. Like they, they thwart his plan within minutes of writing in here, mm-hmm. um, which is good, you know, for the larger affiliation. I mean, obviously it doesn't ultimately matter because they, you know, Gilead falls eventually we know. But at the same time, I'm a little bummed. I wanted to see the Robo Army. <laughs> <laughs> and and we see here, that, again, that just these guys are no match for Roland and his gunslinger compatriots. And really, Roland's worst enemy throughout this entire book, the person he, he was a match for was essentially himself. And the only casualty that they see come out of all of this fighting with all of these Jonas, DePape, Reynolds, Coral Thorne, and like all of these people, the only casualty in all of this all comes as a result of Roland, his own sort of failures, like his failure to kill Rhea, to take the threat of the ball seriously, leaving Susan on her own. All of those things were strategic mistakes that he made versus being outmatched by an actual opponent, which I think is really interesting. Obviously, Latigo is furious. If Roland's fatal flaw is his hubris in this book, Latigo's is he essentially makes the same mistake that Jonas made, but on a more rapid timeline where he just sort of underestimates these boys and he thinks of them as boys. Which, but that's, you know, a little bit later. I'm getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah. And we see just how easily Roland is able to enact his plan. Like, like I said, they lowered the stakes right away from the start and then... There's no pushback. Like at every point of this plan, it not only goes according to plan, it goes better than according Mm -hmm. to plan. Like they thought they were going to have to use all of the firecrackers to blow up the tankers. But I mean, they only end up using one. Roland has one bullet whizzes past his head at some point. But that's the only shot that's fired in return. (laughs) And it just, I don't know, it just kind of shows you the stakes that they were, they were facing. Yeah, it, it, the the bullet thing is like the big one. It's like Stephen King really wanted to underline, listen, they only managed to get one shot off at these One kids. shot off. 
after yeah. like all this damage, they were so surprised. They just were like, whoa, whoa what? And then yeah. these guys ride out with no issue. So we cut back to Latigo. He's like, of course, had one of his guys shot and he's like got a kind of a plan. He's, he realizes that uh, Eyebolt Canyon is a box canyon and that's sort of like drumming in his brain like a box canyon. Yeah, we can do this. And so he gathers the troops that he's got together and the other group that's on the other side of this area is also gathering together and they're riding towards the guys to merge. <laughs> and it's basically just like a bunch of people enraged, led by an enraged man, mm-hmm. and thinking that they've got the upper hand against, you know, what, three boys? riding heavy yeah. and strong into this canyon and i i don't know that there's much else to say besides then we cut back to the boys and they've ridden up the canyon rolling like stops and they dismount and he, he's so confident that these guys aren't paying enough attention or have the wherewithal to to think about the situation that he's like no i'm not going to waste perfectly good stock from gilead these horses are my friends they are quality horses and i love these guys we're gonna uh, shoo them off and we'll go on foot from here so that they don't get forced into the fire or into the canyon yeah and like there's a moment with roland and uh is it's it was a rusher i think is his horse yeah yeah so like roland actually is like no man you got to get out of here yeah. the horse is like really he's like yes really and <laughs> has to like kind of swat him off to to get him going and that's a cute moment because like in roland's mind he also is like and we became friends yeah yeah i mean i personally was extremely relieved in this moment because i had i was already starting to think about like what's gonna happen if they went with rusher and blue horse and i don't know elaine's horse's name but like what's gonna happen with these horses because they're gonna be trapped as well because they can't climb out with them and so when Roland dismounted Rusher. I was very relieved. I mean, it didn't save me from a lot of really upsetting horror, uh, mm-hmm. horse related drama that's coming up right now. But Rusher, I was glad to see that he survived this. You don't like Jaws pistoning like <laughs> skeleton yes. motors? Oh man. Yeah, yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. So I also need to talk about some of the metaphors in this section. I think you'll appreciate this. So okay. I'm just going to read this quote. Um, like I said, I, the metaphors, let's just say they're a little adult, shall we? Okay. So, okay, I'm going to read this quote. Latigo's men had counted the odds, two dozen against three, with many more of their own force riding hard to join the battle, and their peckers were up once more. Oh, yeah. Roland faced front and pointed Rusher into the slit in the brush, making an entrance to Eyebolt Canyon, you know, the box canyon. I was just like, wow, that is a... Uh, very vaginal i <laughs> did hear I the like, whole like peckers up thing but i thought it was more like your like at attention was like what stephen king was going i mean for. i he does i think he's trying to say like they're yeah they're like at attention they're excited they're like their blood is pumping but i i do think these back-to-back statements of the pecker being up and then this like extremely vaginal metaphor the you know the bushy slit essentially <laughs> but then i was like to be fair they're all about to get seriously fucked so it kind of makes sense that we went this route <laughs> no you don't think so i, I mean like, i, I wonder if like to me i wonder if there was actually that much thought in it or like 
it just sort of happened and then he's like oh yeah and it works out hey i mean i guess it's possible but i i do think it's like it's a bunch of erect dicks going into a slit. <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> I'm not the creep. <laughs> Stop staring at me. Everyone look away. Um, yeah. So, and then like I said, Latigo's making the same stupid tactical errors, estim- underestimating these boys, and he's going to end up with the same result that Jonas, Jonas did. Yeah. And then there's a so there's a moment right after he uh, chases the horses off, and um, I need to make sure I talk about this where. <laughs> Like Roland also sends Keith Burton Elaine yeah. a- a- away from him, and and like there's a moment. Is it uh, Keith Burton who wants to start the fire? Yeah, he's like, he's like I'm, I'm a fire, I'm a fire bug. bug, and like, <laughs> and you're like, whoa, like the clowny guy is also the like raging fire guy. I mean, he was having a good old time when they were blowing up Sticko. To be fair, true, so. yeah. And so, like, Roland has to, like, um, kind of push him off. And when he does that, there's a, a yeah. moment, too, where, like, Roland is like, no, these, this is my my job. I kill all these people. Mm-hmm. And, like, that internalized sort of still feels like Roland, in a way, is protecting the innocence of the others. Interesting. By taking over this portion of, of a lighting, you know, the... Uh, match and starting the brush fire mm, and you yeah don't, you don't quite feel it at first but when roland actually like says no this is my job and then like roland actually reflects on everything that happens afterwards is like no i killed all these people yeah i guess that's true like he he needs to finish this kind of thing yeah he also is like make sure you keep an eye on the ball protect the ball and i'm like no don't do it. There is also another little moment here that we need to talk about. And that is that as once Cooper leaves and he's alone, getting ready, waiting for the people to come so he can light the fires, he starts to hear the voice of the Finney and that feeling, that sort of otherworldly feeling in that voice in his head takes him back to what it felt like to be inside the ball. And in that moment, he starts to get a hint that maybe he doesn't totally know everything that's happening with Susan and the way that he, confidently felt before and the the he says that the thinny kind of mocks him saying that there might have been more to see but he is able to kind of like tell himself like no she's with shimi and still in this moment he's able to compartmentalize but it's kind of the setup for what is going to be coming down um after after the fight sort of resolves itself we're starting to see the cracks in that compartmentalization that he's been able to get away with it up until this point this is a little did he know moment i know i know it's so brutal usually that's king sort of as the narrator telling us that but like now the voice of the finney's finney is taking on that role now speaking of the finney oh <laughs> my god i was not ready for this yeah, i don't know this, about you this was like an abrupt change in tone character yeah. and everything like you're you're in one place and then stephen king's like and then Roland's a child on vacation. I know, and you're like, baby what? Roland. Wait, what? What? <laughs> what? And he's staring at his parents. Did we go on vacation? Did they hold hands on vacation? Did we have a love-filled vacation of my parents holding each other on the beach? Like, yeah. And then as Roland like sort of uh, comes to his sanity or reality or whatever, he realizes that it's not his parents holding hands in front of him. It's actually 
uh, Elaine and Keithbert holding each other as they walk towards the yeah. thing and get ready to step in. And Roland has to like basically do the same thing that they did to him for the ball is like fire off a shot to like mm-hmm. wake him out of their zoning. And, and this moment is where you realize that the thinny isn't just a thing that can reach out and grab you. It's a thing that can convince you that it's a good idea for you to be part of it. Right. And the part that's extra interesting is like Roland isn't shocked at all when they tell him like, he was it was the thinny was talking to us he's, he's like, like oh yeah, yeah of course it does it. that that's the thing it, it does it talks <laughs> to you like don't even worry about it get going guys <laughs> it's just like yeah yeah your brain's in a weird spot Roland. yeah this thinny is real different than the one that we got to know in kansas so i definitely want to get it? into like i want to get well i mean they're walking through it Remember, because they're like in a swamp, essentially. They have to walk through this thinny as they're going down the highway. Like the is, thinny... is the thinny a body that just never dies? I don't and know. So, like, what once it it's is. weak, it can't attack you, but you can walk through it. I don't. I don't. I don't know if it's something like maybe it's like where the thinny is going to changes its nature, or if it's something inside the thinny that maybe it's not the thinny itself that's attacking. I don't know what it is, but it is very different than what in present day i'm kind of amazed that roland stepped into it at all considering what well he's what not we quite learned. in it so like the way stephen king kind of describes this is there's a green marsh yeah and the green marsh is like just ahead of him and and that's one thing i probably should point out is as keith burton and elaine hear the gunshot and pull back uh-huh. they were so close to that marsh that the tips of their shoes are missing yeah that's and such like a great toes, little like are sticking out of their moment. shoe. And it's yeah. like, okay, so the thinny can stretch itself a little ways, sort of in like tendrils, but yeah. the actual thinny itself is like a hard line in the sand where it'll just dissolve you once you cross into that zone. Yeah, if it touches you, apparently it can do bad things. Which is weird because, I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but like the original descriptions of the thinny were more like a spot where it was thin between worlds. Yeah. And so that leads me to conclude that this particular spot where it's thin between worlds is thin between a really evil world that has just allowed that That's what I'm evil wondering. thing to leak in. So maybe yeah. you can have thinnies where you can just um, do like the, uh, the animal head creatures do and like walk from spot to spot yeah. because it's thin. But if that thinny connects you to an evil or corrupted place, then you can have something like this instead. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly, I was like, what do we think it, what, why is the nature of the thin, why do they vary? And I wondered if it has something to do with like the world that it connects to, or if there is something, if this is a thinny that is allowing some creature on the other side to kind of reach through and grab things. I don't know. I I don't know that we ever get any clarification around that, but I'm very curious about it because it is not like the other thinny we know. For some reason, I just went straight to Howard the duck. (laughs) I could not believe when you pulled out that Howard the Duck reference. And then it was like so apt. (laughs) What the hell? Um, Okay. So let's talk a little bit about this memory that Roland has about his parents. Because I do think it's actually pretty interesting. There's something that is said in here that I think because I read the book and listen to it, I caught something that maybe might have snuck on past you. Are you talking about like the the love bit where like the last time Roland saw him, they weren't in love, but... 
in this moment than the thinny they're like the whole relationship between the three of them is like a strong love i mean there is that as well but okay i thought so, that was really weird because it's like no one was you know they yeah, were all he has in like, this, like memory of of child this like beautiful childhood before martin came in and became a problem for his parents okay so he in his memory he's watching his parents on the beach and their arms are wrapped around one another and what okay so i'm going to read you this quote that really stood out to me so it says how his heart had filled with love for them how infinite was love twinning in and out of hope and memory with like a braid with three strong strands so much the bright tower of every human's life and soul so the thing that i think slides by you if you're just listening to the audiobook is that bright tower mm-hmm. is capitalized oh yes so the bright tower is the opposite of the dark tower right so love is the bright tower and yeah hmm. so if love if the love is the opposite of the dark tower what is the dark tower i mean is it just i kind of interpreted it as sort of like the foundation of reality, right? It's sort of the linchpin of reality. So is, so is, what is he saying about love here at this point? Or is it like, in the love is sort of the dark tower within all of us. Uh, it's the light, bright tower. So like every part of our reality, every part of our being is held together with this tower of like the love that lives inside us. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. That's, uh, so... The first part of me then says, like, does that mean that hate will keep us together? <laughs> I mean, I think hate will tear us apart if love is what keeps us together. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Now I, I mean... want to sing that song, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You want to do some karaoke later? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you put a drink in me and a microphone in my hand and it's it's bad for everyone, but it'll happen. It'll happen. <laughs> so, Okay. So I do think it's notable that Roland is having this vision in this moment. You know, on one level, I think it's because he's literally seeing something in terms of composition play out with him. Similarly, like two people that he loves holding hands on the shore of some sort of not a body of water, but something similar. Right. Mm -hmm. But I also think that the timing of this is really interesting because this is in the moment where he, in his pursuit of the Dark Tower, has decided to basically forsaken and give up his own Bright Tower in pursuit of the Dark Tower. He's been told by this voice in the ball that everything he, everyone he loves will die if he pursues it, and he decides to go ahead and pursue that anyway. And so here he is looking at these two people, aside from Susan, that he loves in his life, on the the brink of basically death. And I just think there's lots of layers here of what's happening right now. Like these are people that potentially he will have to, or would be willing to sacrifice in order to pursue the, the dark tower. And they're like, basically like spokes on the wheel of his internal bright tower. Hmm. So are you saying that like, he needs to break off each of those spokes in order to be able to pursue the dark tower? I mean, I think that, what happens is much like with the dark tower, if the beams are failing, then the dark tower will fall. Like if the beams fail in his, in his bright tower, Roland may fall that kind of thing or the love inside of him. will anyway. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I was trying to think of ways I could connect the, uh, 
bright tower to the dark tower and i don't really have anything i i feel like i need to throw that to the audience guys gals if you have any ideas or um better insight into this one i would love to hear it because this is interesting but i i'm i don't have like a thread to pull on i don't think fair uh, enough fair enough I, I, yeah it's just yeah i don't i don't have anything like i i, I keep thinking like well maybe his parents represent and then i'm like nope that's stupid <laughs> i mean like they would be spokes on a wheel right like his parents susan his quartet his various quartets from a metaphorical perspective like the the spokes on his own tower right these are all people that love him these are all people that you know the people in your life uplift you they oh you know, so is this like a uh road to hell is paved with good intentions and each one of those is a good intention that is paving his way to the dark tower i mean he's in his pursuit of the dark tower he's essentially breaking all of the the beams of his light it's bright tower hmm. so he's he's making a choice and the thing is, is as as we see, the Roland as he is today is someone who's kind of when we when we meet him in the Gunslinger is kind of a broken person. And as he added members to his quartet, like he started to kind of come alive again. And it's it's I think part of it is having like he genuinely loves at least Jake, and I think as what he loves the rest of them as well. But we know for sure he loves Jake, and I think that revitalization of that part of himself is what's sort of awakening and, and some, in some ways I think restoring Roland. I don't know. Like you can't go through the trauma that he's going to go through in this chapter and like subsequent things in his life and, and not have some degree of, you know, emotional package, but compared to how he was when we first met him, he's a different person. See, I think for me, the reason I focused in on the uh, love bit was actually because it was, um, it was the thinny that was putting this vision into his mind. And so for me, I thought, you think, like, the, you think the thinny put that vision into his mind? You don't think it was just like, it called up a memory. Maybe like, so it's so abrupt and it's the thinny about to eat his friends. And like, mm -hmm. what better way to distract Roland from his friend's death mm. than to throw something like his parents' his parents love in at him. And, yeah, and that's a thing that either he's never seen or hasn't seen in so long that it's uh, it's not even a reality for him. Hmm. And so the easiest way to distract someone in like, you know, the evil genie scenario or the mind warp scenario or the <laughs> the shadow scenario. Yeah, um, is to like give them their hopes and dreams as a vision. And like this is actually I think the best version of this is the harry potter scenario with the mirror where mm. like you look into the mirror and it just shows you whatever you dream dream of having happen like for harry right. it's meeting his parents and for someone else it's maybe like wearing a fancy dress and looking beautiful at a ball or, or what have you um, mm -hmm. and so this like the thinny is like what's the best way to get roland off of his game not carnage or or uh um crazy taunting it's like here's love Love role yeah. is something you don't even recognize. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's definitely interesting. I I my interpretation was is it jogged a memory, but it could very well be more than that because we know that the thinny is very much in its head, and he is vulnerable to psychic attack right now, as we're going to find <laughs> out pretty soon. All right, so let's get into what happens next. All right, so uh, 
I, I wish I had to pull the quote, but um, I'll have to paraphrase. Cause, is it <laughs> is it Hendrick's death? Because I did pull the quote. Oh, well, no, no, but that's really good. That's the jaw thing and stuff is really crazy. But um, what I wanted to point out right away is like Latigo, who is leading this charge, he first and foremost is is focused on the canyon and that they can easily pot shot him to to death in this canyon like we'll shoot at him until they come out and surrender and then we'll kill him but Mm -hmm. as he's galloping in stephen king takes a moment to actually describe the changing in the surroundings around him and it's easily lost if you're not paying close attention but latigo looks and like he's riding through the tall grass right and then suddenly he's seeing you know little white pieces of rib cages yeah. And cow skulls and like the growth shrinks away to just dead brush. Okay. I have, I pulled, I found it. Okay. So it says, yeah. Then you know what I'm talking about. Yes. Yes. He says whitish piles of cow skulls and rib cages. This was, this was a kind of low buzzing, a maddening, sobering whine, insectile and insistent. It made his eyes water, yet strong as the sound was, if it was a sound, it almost sounded to be coming from inside him. He pushed it aside, holding to his mantra, Box Canyon, Box Canyon. I got him in a Box Canyon. Yeah, yeah, that's... Ooh, it's so good, it's so good! And and that's what I I really wanted to underline, because, like, even with every cue possible of this is not right, (laughs) I should not be here, he is focused on one singular goal of, like, getting these kids back and Mm -hmm. realizing that... I think part of the pushing force is that, you know, the good man is out there. And oh, that'll, and yeah, and don't forget Walter. That'll yep, motivate exactly. you. Yep, exactly. It's like, and even worse, Walter, you know, like I have to go meet these guys if if this uh, if this doesn't end poorly for me and, and explain to them what happened and then mm-hmm. it'll end poorly for me. But I can't think about that right now. Right. Right. He's, I mean, he, it says he's in an ecstasy of fury, so he is not thinking at all. Nope, he's just guns blazing, let's go. Which could not be better for Roland and the gang. <sighs> so, basically, Latigo gets these, like, bits of hints and stuff, and then suddenly his horse comes to a stop. And screams. He and scream. Yeah, screams like a girl, <laughs> uh, which sounds horrible. And Latigo like manages to grab the um, I forget what the circle nub on a horse uh, saddle is. Um, the horn. The horn. Yeah, he manages to grab the horn and stay atop of his horse and beats and kicks at the horse, and the horse just won't move forward. And then the horse like tips over sideways. And the vision I got from this uh, when um, I, I, I was reading it is, have you ever seen that that moment in the blob yes. where the girl like falls asleep on something? And then Are you he, thinking of the raft? It, maybe it's the raft. I, well, it like reaches through and it like touches her face. Well, there, this scene has probably been duplicated through multiple movies. Well, I mean, it's another Stephen King because it's from Creepshow. Oh, okay. Well, maybe the raft too then. We're like, basically you move them and they look just perfectly fine and alive until you see the other side and it's just like yes. eaten up and, and torn yes. apart. And like, that's what this felt like. It's like the horse yes. stopped moving because its feet are gone, buddy. Oh my God, <laughs> and it's like, so gross. And like, it falls over and it's getting eaten 
half of its body at a time as it like screams in bloody oh. horror. And like Latigo looks over and sees Hendrix just being dissolved into this mass and yeah. like notices that they're the trumpet boys bugle bent and still tied to something floating along oh my the God. greenish ooze and the description of like the last moments of hendrix like uh his jaw opening and closing like a pistoned machine of bone yeah let me um, let me read it because i pulled it because it is amazing but also horrific it came alive somehow as he struck it. The green grew hands and a green shifty mouth pawed at his cheek and melted away the flesh, pawed at his nose and tore it off, pawed at his eyes and stripped them from their sockets. It pulled Hendrix under, but before it did, Latigo saw its den his denuded jawbone, a bloody piston to drive his screaming teeth. Ah! Right? <laughs> it's amazing! It's so upsetting i mean i want to see this and i don't at the same it, it it made me think of like now that you're saying the blob obviously the part in the blob where it goes over the guy's whole face and you mm -hmm. see it melts which is one of the best special effects ever but i also was thinking of raiders of the lost ark yeah, when their faces yeah. melt yeah exactly when they're like they open the ark up and it's like and now we melt your face off oh it's so good it's so good <laughs> and these are just those moments where you're like oh right this is why Stephen King is the master of horror. Yeah, and, because and this, this whole thing is oh, it just ahead. keeps going because like yeah. so Latigo realizes like oh shit things are going sideways and like a kid rolls up and not more than a second after he's he's gotten there Latigo knocks him off of his horse cracks his head on a rock and like is back astride the horse to try and escape this and the next wave comes in after oh. that and the next oh. wave after that and then like he starts to realize that Oh crap, they started the bush on fire around the mm -hmm. mouth of the canyon. And so even more people are being driven in by the smoke and the trap. And now you have a fire on one side and certain death on the other side. And Latigo's like, Well, I'm not going down without a fight. And I, you know, I know the face of my father. And he he gets his gun out, knowing perfectly well that it'll do nothing to this thinny. And is about to face it. And then everyone that's there just casually drops their arms. And almost like that scene in Old Brother Where Art Thou walks into the water. Yeah. I mean, this is truly a hellscape. Like, they're the crush of the men as they bottleneck into this. The screams, the smoke, the horses with broken legs. Just the way it's described is just the stew of people being melted. And then, if that's not enough, Stephen King then closes it with, like, this incredibly chilling vision of people just voluntarily marching into the thinny. It's just so dark. Dark. And, I mean, if, if the, the stuff with Jonas was rad. But his end was kind of a little anticlimactic. Not in a bad way, because I, it speaks to character stuff. That in ways that were really impactful, but this the Latigo—it's almost like does anybody Holy even deserve that? Shit. Like even Latigo, the worst of the worst, is yeah to lose lose his own will at the end and walk into a horrible screaming death. And I mean, there's a moment when Roland and the gang are watching the canyon, and the screams fill the air, 
Yeah. And then they finally go silent. Right. And it's like, what is worse? Like the screaming or then when you just watch a procession of men walk to certain death. Oh, it's just Ooh. when you see people when uh, there have been fires or things like that. And you see people just like jumping out of high rises mm -hmm. to avoid the fire. And it's just there's something even more chilling and hopeless about that and just tragic about that. It's kind of like that on a, a massive scale. It is unbelievable this i was i was not prepared for this but i you know i love it <laughs> but reading it a couple times i was like god damn this is brutal there, there's i mean there are worse ways to go i suppose but this is up there i also just think about and we'll get into it in this next section here but the impact of witnessing something like that how even if you're they're gunslingers and they've just killed a bunch of people to watch something like that where people are just trapped between fire and this massive dissolving thinny and just the, how horrific it all was, the impact that would have on you. And to know that you were actually, you it was premeditated and you were responsible for creating that. It's one thing to think about it and be like, this is what we need to do in order to prevent, you know, this larger atrocity. But to actually be there in the moment and to watch that unfold, the impact that would have on you. Like, you were talking about trying to protect the loss of innocence of, of Cuthbert and Elaine, and I don't know that Roland succeeded. Well, I mean, oh. at, at the very least, like, he's the one who lit the match. That is true. He is the one that lit the match. And so from, you know, a younger person's perspective, like, he can always fall back on that as the, like, linchpin. Like, listen, guys. I was the one who ultimately struck the match right. that led to this thinny growing and engulfing all of these men and horses until there was nothing left to scream. Yeah. I mean, and so much of this book is about Roland becoming, going from being the young man that he is at the beginning of this book to setting the, becoming the man that he ultimately becomes in the books as we know him now. And this is kind of between this and the fight. Um, with Jonas's man, you can sort of draw parallels to things that he does later, like the killing of Toll, yeah. the slaughter of Toll. Um, how someone could do that and kill the women and the children. Like, it seems so shocking at the time. And you're just like, hold my beer. <laughs> Wait till you hear what he did at 14. <laughs> this is a thing we do. Don't even worry about it. Uh, so basically, the boys watch all of this carnage happen, they see it go silent. And then uh, one of them notices that the moon is like kind of turning orange. Yeah. And it's the same orange as when they got into town. And it's like, oh, crap. It's the color of a bonfire covering the moon. Yeah. And like at this moment, Roland sort of like flashes back to the glass. Yeah. And realizes that the glass showed him some stuff. But Roland was too focused on the tower by all the other distractions that yeah. the glass was able to show him that he didn't realize that the farmer that he had seen in the, the glass wasn't saying like, um, you know, life for my crop. He was saying your death for the life of my crop. Yeah. Char you tree. Char you tree. And like yeah. those ancient words roll through his mind as he begins to panic and rush the boys uh, out of the, out of the edge of the canyon maybe it's not too late and he hears the voice of the thinny mocking him and mm -hmm. Rhea mocking mm -hmm. him in his head 
almost is like a psychic trauma from every direction of yeah. all of these larger than life villains being like, and you got what you you deserve for killing my snake. Where am I yeah. going to get my love now? Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> no. I forgot. I blanked that out of my head. It's well, there is a moment where she's like, Ermot died. You murderous bastards. You killed Ermot. Yeah. And like, then you're like, why is she so into the snake? And like, no one does lady up no, like Ermot does. No. <laughs> Talk about psychic trauma. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do think it, I mean, considering what import the moon has had over the course of this book, I'm not surprised that, it, you know, in this moment that it is the moon, the, the appearance of the moon that kind of shakes loose all of these memories. And that's what I'm saying. I feel like in some ways, the impact of the ball had on him wasn't just the gray hair, but I do think it kind of planted some weird firewalls in his head, you know? And in this moment, it, he is able to kind of break through those memories right when it's too late to do anything about it. And uh, that's pretty heartbreaking. But also, I had not put together... So we find out that this man on the side of the road um, is the person that's in the ball. But his description matches that of Brown, who, the the farmer from The Gunslinger. So mm-hmm. presumably, they're the same person, which I guess kind of makes sense considering that we also know Sheb ended up in Toll. So these people are kind of moving around. So maybe, maybe it is the same. I don't know. Um, but the one question I have is like, why is he still a young man when he meets him in the gunslinger? Uh, well, uh, as we learned from the ball, and I will probably reveal in the uh, um, extended in the extended episode some things that mm-hmm. I put together in my mind about things that I will explain later. <laughs> Okay, that's great. I'm excited. I'm actually genuinely looking forward to hearing that. Yeah, so the guys are at the canyon. We cut to Susan. Yeah. And we already got some foreshadowing with this uh, bonfire times. Yeah. And uh, Susan is riding along in in, uh, Rhea's technicolored witch cart. Uh, Past farmers. And... She's starting to realize what's going on here as she passes um, a farmer that she recognized, you know, is nodded to a few times here and there. And mm-hmm. he throws some stuff at her and says, Char, you tree. And she sort of dwells yeah. on the moment of the word Char, you tree and like what it actually means and the fire and the cleansing and then the darkness yeah. of that. And she kind of starts to realize that not going to have a lot of future with her baby or no. with her uh, Roland or any uh, gem infested weddings in Gilead uh, yeah. because she's short for this world. Mm-hmm. And it's it's actually even a little bit weirder because Rhea from going from like basically near death to drinking the blood of aunt cord mm-hmm. to now her magic is a like full swing and she has everybody in this area under her spell uh, to the point where like 
she's tied up and she knows these people. They're, they're friends and they're acquaintances and she's part of the town and they are all ready to start her on fire. And the only, like this is the weirdest bit is like the only uh, moment of kindness is Reynolds with the rope. Yeah. And so like this guy that we've definitely not been on the side of this whole time mm-hmm. is like, and is a bad guy is like looking around and he's like, yeah, I'm a bad guy. But what these people are doing is fucked up. Yeah. He's like, sorry, Rhea's in charge. Like, I'm not going to choke you if I don't have to, but, but if you start digging around, I've got instructions to choke you. Yeah. <laughs> orders, you know? And like that moment for me was, I mean, yeah, it's dramatic that the townspeople are, are throwing stuff at her, but it's even more dramatic that the one bad character that's still left and running around is mm-hmm. like, sorry about this. This is real bad. Yeah, I mean, it just tells you how linked this kind of behavior is with the community and the sense of unease in the area, the sense of loss of culture, the sense of loss of their reaping fair and finding a new darker way to replace that celebration how linked it is to their their cultural history with charyu tree as an outsider there's some room for mercy still left in reynolds who is a big coffin hunter and kind of the last place that you're going to expect to see any of that come from but you're right it, it does stand out as a very strange moment in all of this the other thing I wanted to point out in this like trek to where the bonfire is going to happen mm-hmm. is that they're not moving fast. They're moving at a mm-hmm. kind of predictable speed. And Susan starts to realize that this is because they're waiting for the moon to be fully ripe in the sky before yeah. they burn her at the stake. And like, this is, this is like the darkest part of that because it's almost a ritual murder Mm -hmm. as opposed to just uh at first you thought like maybe the crowd will just get riled up and they'll like grab her and throw her on fire and burn her and it's like no we have a set of steps we're gonna make this go slow um we're gonna throw stuff at you as we march you through the the city this has like Mm -hmm. a very biblical vibe to it i mean and it's also very intentional by ria to make sure that she gets there ju- when the sun sets and reaping begins. So they're at their, you know what I mean? They haven't had time to think about, you know, like maybe what are we doing? They're right in that sweet spot of this is when it happens, when they're the most prepared to actually go through with it. This is yeah. hard. This is a hard scene because, you know, in comparison to this just absolutely cruel community and Rhea and everything around her being so hateful, to mm-hmm. the end, Susan is faithful to Roland. Her dreams are dying before her eyes. She knows what's going to happen, and yet she stays surprisingly calm through it all. There's a part of her that seems to have accepted that Roland is not going to come for her. And instead of feeling betrayed by him or regretful about what she's done, instead she takes this time to pray to her father for strength so that she doesn't show her fear or any weakness in front of the people. But also she prays for Roland's safety. And it's just kind of like, oh, God, she's Roland's bright tower. <laughs> this is not good. Like she's, you know, this is a big part of his heart that is going off to die. And it's it's just like really sad on a lot of levels. 
There's also a moon reference in here. We hear the moon is described as a bloated moon, which of course made me think of two things, like greed and just kind of like, and also just bloated corpses. Just very, not a good look for the moon. And considering what is going to happen being so ugly and the moon always being a reflection thematically of what's going on, I think the use of bloated is intentional here. I thought that was actually a reference to her being pregnant again. I mean, it could be that as well. Oh, I mean, it works on multiple Susan's. levels. Poor Susan. I mean, we get so caught up in the Susan of it all, but like, yeah, Roland's <laughs> baby dies here too. Yeah, and um, even when she's praying, like Rhea's like cackling in the background, like, yeah, now's a good time to pray to whatever powers you believe in. And she's yep. like, well, I don't really believe in God, but I believe in my father. And then she starts chanting, what is it? Uh, barren hair and... Turtle and fish or something like that? A barren turtle, hair and fish. Barren turtle, hair and fish. Okay, yeah. So, mm-hmm. like, as she's, like, kind of blessing Roland at the same time, like, hoping that, you know, praying that everything will go good for him and, like, praying to her father, she's also sort of chanting those animals over and over again. Mm-hmm. Which is sort of their little oath to each other. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Susan! So then we cut cut from Susan's uh, uh, little did she know. Well, actually, mm-hmm. she knows a lot now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, to Roland and the gang, and they're they're back at the top of the canyon. They have escaped any of the fire down the way, and uh, Roland's like, "Give me that glass." Mm-hmm. And he shoves his face in the glass, and basically is screaming and impassioned as he watches what is happening to his love and like there's a part of his mind that's like no shimi's got this shimi's got this shimi's got this yeah and he doesn't doesn't got this um and he recognizes people who he actually thought were nice and cared about who Mm -hmm. um are throwing stuff at susan and there's a little spot in the middle of this big pile of brush that she fits perfectly into. And and the crowd is just being so mean. And, and meanwhile, we have Elaine and Keith Burt, like basically um, outside of Roland, realizing how crazy this is. And then realizing that the ball is taking advantage of Roland mm-hmm. and his grief to suck him dry of emotions. Yeah. And that combination just becomes like a a crazy thing as Roland basically watches Aunt Cord throw the first torch yeah. on the fire. Susan sets in, realizing her fate. Her hands are dripping a little red because they painted them red with uh, paint, and she's a stuffy gal getting yeah. burned alive at the stake. And... and the thing is, is um, Stephen King does her one kindness in this moment. Yeah. She, she takes in one last cold breath and screams out Roland's name. Roland, I love thee. Roland, I love thee. And she gets hot too fast and the fire doesn't hurt at all. She just dies and goes into nothing. And at the moment she screams, Roland, I love thee many of the crowd members that are there staring at this horrific scene of them throwing filth at this girl and tossing her on the pyre and Mm -hmm. burning her alive at the stake. It's, 
they're knocked out of their hypnosis from yeah from Rhea's spell and many of them would have come to her rescue had it not already been too late yeah for that to happen and so yeah and uh that's how we uh find Susan done for I mean I knew it was coming it's been obvious since the first page but it's still really this way this really made me sad i'm not gonna lie this was a i was kind of dreading this and it was hard to get through this portion of the chapter even though what we just went through was horrific this one really it really kind of broke my heart so yeah so so let's start back where roland first gets the ball so he gets as soon as he gets out of the canyon the first thought he has is he wants the ball which makes sense to some degree it's that he doesn't want to just rush back into Hambray considering they just escaped there he doesn't actually know where she is that kind of stuff makes sense mm -hmm. but at the same time there is this little sliver of doubt that we know the effect that the ball can have on people and people who have looked into it probably would like any excuse to look into it again so there's that that little twinge of like oh no don't look into the ball um because well, we'll see that it had a master plan here that comes to fruition. But the ball, once again, shows him the worst of people, which is what this ball does. And in this case, it's the townspeople that he, like you said, he's come to know. He likes these people, but they're showing their worst and most evil side, which is just this cruel, merciless mob mentality. And he describes it, there's basically... There's this moment where he's talking about the people of Hambury and why they're doing what they're doing. And it really shows you that there's this darkness within them and this greed within them. He says, all the folk of Hamley and Magus you have been deprived, who had been deprived of their fare, but were given this ancient dark attraction and it's dead. Char you tree, come reap, death for you, life for our crops. And so I was kind of thinking... What do we think Stephen King is sort of saying about human nature with all of this? That he makes a point of pointing out all of these people in the mob, people that not only Roland came to like, but these are people that have known Susan since she was a child, that knew her father, that, that you know, at, at one point when she says, Roland, I love thee, how it clicks in their head like this is the same kid we, we've known her entire life. What do you think Stephen King is trying to say about human nature in this moment? I mean, to me, it's just the regular caught in the moment crowd mentality mm -hmm. that you have in any major scene in any crowd movie where they all get riled up into a fervor, do something, and then you cut to 10 minutes later when people are like seeing the result of this crowd action and are dismayed and upset by the actions that they themselves were involved in. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I've seen this in real life, so it's not yeah. actually a not legitimate take on humanity when you, yeah, no, no, I, I agree. You put enough people into a crowd and like when panic strikes, they don't react in any sane, rational way. See, this is like cold and calculated. Yeah, but I think like as a group before they before they realize what they've done, they're sort of marching along as a collective to do yeah. this. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and they're not thinking about the end result or the connection to Susan when they're doing this. They're thinking about it as like a task that must be completed or a, an object that must be removed from their town. And it's not until she screams out, I, I love you, Roland, that mm-hmm. they separate the object that needs to be removed from her their town from the fact that or they connect the two that she's a person and not just something that they're getting rid of. Mm-hmm. And that moment is when they come to and so their cl- cl- crowd mentality on top of Rhea being in control of them is more like it's remember that really dark test they did uh, um, to kind of figure out what soldiers were thinking in World War II in Germany? No, but I can imagine. So there's a doctor that does this test, and it's like it's a famous uh, thought experiment that he wanted to play out in the lab. And there's somebody supposedly behind the wall, and your job is to like do what the doctor says and electrocute him. And if the doctor, if you hear him scream from the other side, and the doctor uh, tells you like you need to do this, we're gonna shy away from it, and like most of the people wouldn't take a direct command. But if someone said it's for the good of the town or it's for science or the experiment's really important and it needs to continue, mm-hmm. people were like 85 or 90% more likely to continue raising the electrical shock value on this person yeah. that they can't see to the point where mm-hmm. there was no response anymore and they would continue pushing the button. And that's the mentality that I think is is on show here is like – not only have they turned her from a person into an object with this sort of fervor of just throwing stuff at her and carrying her and marching her through town, but they've also sort of separated themselves from the task that's being performed and instead focused on it being a thing that is providing entertainment or separating their town or protecting their town or making a difference Mm -hmm. in their town as opposed to, no, you got. If I would have told you to go start someone on fire, you'd say heck no. But if I suggested that this is a important cause that needs to be done, you all begrudgingly wander through all the steps and do it. And that's the bar scene too earlier on, where right. no one wants to celebrate, but they all are resigned to this because they know it's for the you know the good of the group and the thing that we need to do to to make things right again. As opposed to Rhea saying, like, go kill that girl. Right. I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm. Yeah. Yeah. Those it's, Stanford it's, experiments are dark, though, man. Yeah, they really are. So the other thing that happens, like you said, is that Cord is the one who throws the first torch onto the fire. Yeah. So she's described as emerging from the group, still bearing the ash mark that Susan put on her face last mm-hmm. time they had seen each other. And Susan had told her at the time, like, you can wash this off if you want, but I think you're going to bear this mark forever. And in return, Cord tells her that she's going to be in the ashes. And in the scene, essentially, both of those curses come true, right? This is sort of the end result of Cord's decision to help either participate in or cover up the murder of her brother. Like, that is the beginning of her slow slide slide into this madness. She was sort of, in some ways, the architect of her own madness, and it comes to conclusion here. And then, obviously, Susan does indeed end up in the ashes here. 
Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, I will say it, you know, watching Roland be totally traumatized over what he sees is hard to read, but at the same time, there was a little part of me that was grateful. Well, and also grateful to see that he did actually love her because he was so cold-blooded the way he was like, yeah, no, our cause are not the same anymore. I'm moving on. I found a hotter girl named the Dark Tower. Bye. (laughs) So I was, that was a little bit of a relief. Uh, The other thing, you started talking about this a little bit about how is screaming like, no, 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 no. And then just like wordlessly screaming at this point. And while this is happening, the ball starts flashing brighter and brighter. And they start to see Roland's skull as the thing brightens and darkens, right? And essentially eating him at a rapid pace. For me, it kind of actually filled in a plot hole that we we were worried about last time. Which is, why would the ball show him the Dark Tower if him going to the Dark Tower is going to make it possible for him to prevent the end of the world? If this is under the sway of, like, the man in black or the crimson king or whatever and we find out the answer to this is that it needed to show him something that was so compelling that was so powerful that it would be able to distract roland from his current call like this deep deep love that he has for susan and this desire to have a different kind of life and it was it needed to be able to do that in order to to distract him from the truth of what was going to happen and make him vulnerable to being able to be, you know, eaten quickly, essentially. And that, that it creates this grief in him that makes him really exposed and vulnerable. So that, to me, was like kind of also a relief, because I was like, is this a huge plot hole that I just stumbled into? I don't want there to be a plot hole here. <laughs> but this actually makes sense to me. I don't know about, did you have the same, a similar thought when you were reading it? Uh, so... No, but uh, yes and no. (laughs) You're like, Um, long story short, no. (laughs) uh, So this rolls into my theory that I'm saving for later. Um, Okay. So I I don't want to dive too deep. What I will say is that we finally basically understand the, the whole nature of the ball in that its whole thing is to keep you distracted and looking into it with whatever it can so that it can finish you off Mm -hmm. and it's also self-aware of everything going on around it because at this point um the boys pull a gun on it and it immediately shuts off and releases rolling knowing like oh they are serious about destroying me yes i mean it it has a survival instinct which i which to me tells you that there is definitely some kind of intellect here that is not means maybe it's not under the sway of someone else. Like we were wondering, like, is this the man in black talking through this? Now, I, I will tell you the plot hole, though, that is still um, readily apparent is that mm-hmm. the ball. Um, basically, they po- Stephen King takes a moment to point out that the ball, ball can only show you the truth. And yeah, that's sort of a plot hole because. In previous visions of Roland looking into the ball, it showed him multiple things happening at the same time. And Roland says that, like, time isn't right at the moment and that things, you know, any of these outcomes could happen. So their truths in one respect is then they could happen, 
but they're not truths in another respect that they may not actually happen. I mean, maybe they're true in this moment, but like depending on how things go, they could change. Like you're sitting but in, they're... is it that Rick and Morty episode where like you put the crystal up your head and you can see what's coming next? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> so, so like as soon as he turns <laughs> it into the comes corner, back like, to Rick and Morty, <laughs> right? Uh, I don't know. I just um, I I felt like that wasn't necessarily the case. The ball is a window on the world, but it felt to me like it's a window that can show you whatever it wants, not a window that shows you what's there specifically. Yeah. I mean, I think what it is, is it, it has to tell you the truth, but it can lie by omission. Oh, you know what I mean? Like it can choose what it shows you, but it can't show you something that's just like a complete fabrication. It can manipulate you with the truth, but it can't tell you things that are not true. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'll buy into that. All right, cool. Regardless, so... the ball. Um, and then uh, basically, Roland's left as a husk, right? Yeah. And they just like chuck him over a saddle and ride out of town. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a moment here where Elaine wants to crush the ball, but Bert stops him, and I'm not really sure why. What we do get the the typical Stephen King, which is he would come to regret it. I don't know what that means, but I'm guessing maybe Roland is gonna have a tough time with his ball for a while. But the the I was thinking about the the way that this this particular section ends with Roland riding away like a corpse thrown over the back of the horse. And in some respects, he kind of isn't a, a corpse. Roland, as we kn- we knew him in this book, is kind of it's, he's dead. He's dead. He is the corpse of that young boy. And whoever it is that's going to come out of this catatonic state is the new Roland. He's in this weird psychological cocoon, essentially. Yeah, and like there's even a moment where um, uh, they try to use the touch on Roland to talk to him. And nothing. And the description of Roland is like he he eats and is awake, but he doesn't taste anything and he doesn't sleep at night. Yeah. And he's like he vacant. He em- the ball. Empty, shelled, shelled out person. Yeah, I felt a little guilty about being so hard on him last time. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, here's the thing is Roland, for, for whatever you want to think, he has suffered real trauma in this chapter. Between the violence that he participated in and witnessed and then the loss of susan watching her die in a horrible way he doesn't know that she didn't suffer you know like it i'm sure it looked horrific and he's 14 and i think you can't underestimate or overestimate i don't know whichever of those is correct the amount of trauma that that would leave someone with and it kind of softened my heart a little bit to my Roland is not a good man speech last time. <laughs> <laughs> I know he went like totally Hugh Grant on you. And now he's just like, there ain't no sunshine when she's gone. I know. I know. All right. What did you think of this chapter, Deed? Uh, it's pretty good. Uh, lots of action. Um, this wraps up what we've been on the cusp of learning the whole time. Uh, completely blew my mind with uh, how I remember Susan's end being and how it actually happened and huh. so that's uh that was news to me um i actually was pleasantly surprised or not pleasantly um uh, definitely surprised by yeah i'm like pleasantly by damn yeah, I, I all know, right was... cord calm down mm, mm. anyway what about you rachel 
This is an yeah. action scene, so maybe less less stuff I to mean, dig into. This was a hard chapter because it was a really sad chapter, but it was also a really good chapter. I did enjoy the action beats. I'm, I mean, I like action beats. Don't get me wrong. There's not as much sort of meat on the bone, and as far as <laughs> did it melt your face off? It did not melt my face off, but I did have a really good time. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it was. I felt like it tied a lot of the plot things together. It left a lot of things open, though. Like we don't know where Shimi is. We don't know. Like there doesn't appear to be any impact or like any consequences for Rhea. Um, no idea what what the sort of lasting impact is on Hambry. All of those things would be interesting to me. Stephen King, if you're out there, please write a follow up. But um, in terms of if the purpose of the story is to tell us how Roland became the man that he is, I think this chapter really sort of sealed that for me. So I thought from an overall perspective, it was a really important chapter and a good one, if heartbreaking. So yeah, those are my thoughts on this here chapter. So let's talk about what we're going to do next time. We are, we are going to read Wizard and Glass Part 4 All God's Chillin' Got Shoes, Chapter 1, <laughs> Kansas in the Morning, and Chapter 2, Shoes in the Road. All right, so let's see how we're doing on the questions. Um, Still not a ton of answers, so I want to give you guys a little bit more time to respond to this. So the question that I put in the Facebook group that I'm going to put out to all of you listeners, that if you want to respond, you can send it to castacotzombiegirls.com. So here's the question. In this book, Roland has faced off with a ton of enemies. Everyone from Jonas to Rhea to Kord to Coral, Reimer, Latigo, Mayor Thorne. I mean, like everywhere he looked, there was a bad guy in the wings plotting against them, right? And so with so many, it's kind of, I was kind of wondering who to you stands out as the truest villain of them all and why? Oh, that, that's easy. Okay, we'll save it. We're going to talk about it next episode. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So, for those of you at home, write in. For those of you on the Facebook group, sorry I got this up so late. Please do answer in the Facebook. And we will have a little discussion about this next time. Because, I mean, I feel like there's two people, for me, that are neck and neck. So, we'll see where people fall on this. This should be a lot of fun. So, I guess that is it for this episode. If you want to drop us a line, like I said, you can reach us at castofcaughtzombiegirls.com or come over to our Facebook group. If you are enjoying the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you're getting your podcast. If you're looking for something spooky to watch tonight, check out our video on demand calendar at the Zombie Girls website, uh, where we keep track of all the horror and horror adjacent things on streaming and on video on demand. If you are looking to put on some sexy new clothes and attract a nerdy mate of your choice, or if you just, you know, want to do a little self-care and look your best, check out our sweet t-shirts at tpublic.com forward slash zombies dash girls dash podcast. We have t-shirts? And, wow. Oh, we got t-shirts. We got stickers. We got, I mean, like all the stuff that they do. You can do all, you can get coffee mugs. Someone got a coffee mug in the Facebook group and it looked awesome. Uh, sweatshirts, all kinds of good stuff. So peep that. Um, rock out with all of your sweet zombie girls and cast a call merch and if you love the show you should support us on patreon because not only will you get extended episodes 
where we're going to get into the mind brain of DJ today about what he <laughs> thought this book ended. But you, all of the episodes on all of the shows are extended on the Zombie Girls Network. But and I never talk about this, but one of the best perks is just getting onto our Discord. Our Discord is popping. People are hilarious. There are not enough cast of con nerds on there. So I would love to see more people who are cast of con nerds pop on there so that we can get into the like, get into the weeds about about Dark Tower. That's what I would love to see happen. So, I mean, DJ, you know, you're on the Discord. It's it's what's up. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mostly hang out in the show us your kittens and what you're building. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, I bounce beer, around a bit. You show us your beers. Oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> right? <laughs> DJ Jazzy Hef. That I thought that was. Did good. you? You didn't answer me. Did you end up ordering one of those? Yeah, it wasn't very good. <laughs> oh, the name was the best thing about it. Yeah, uh, that bar is well known for having. Um, it has like fifteen coolers as you walk in uh-huh. with like singles of all varieties from all over the United States. That's cool. And uh, you're most often tricked by cover art. Oh, I know. It's it's like. When you were young and you'd go to Blockbuster and you'd like be like, this movie looks rad. And then it's a piece of shit. Like, that's yep. beer now. You're like, this beer looks awesome, but it tastes like butt. Nintendo uh, themed? Yes, please. Oh, gosh. Oh, no. Why does idea. it taste like Atari? Uh, um, <laughs> but yeah, so that and more, you should definitely come. Whatever tier it is, I don't know off the top of my head, that gets you in the Discord, like, at least sign up for that because... We have so much fun on there, and we would love to have more of you guys hanging out, because we're on there, like, every day, pretty much. There's somebody on there hanging out, saying funny shit. So, check that out. All right. Between now and the next time we are together on Cast of Caw, DJ, where can they find you on the internet? Uh, you can swing over to Deadlander.com and listen to the Deadlander podcast. Um, I, it's been going on for a while, and uh, I think uh, we've got some new music to check out. Uh, you can also... Nice. Uh, swing over to Etsy and check out the Muffin Spank page. Occasionally, I have stuff up for sale there. Um, I have three paintings that I need to finish that are uh, on cue to go up there eventually. Uh, <clears throat> work on things, yeah. And um, that's pretty much it. Yes, definitely check out all of DJ's really cool stuff. You never know what it's going to be. Like, it is, he's, he, it's whatever he's, like, passionate about in the moment, and it's always cool when you want a piece of it. They're, they're always on the Discord, too, so you can go swing over to the Discord and check yep. those out. But yeah, that's about it. Um, Let's see. Do we have anything else before we take people out? Well, I mean, you want to know where I'm on the internet? Well, I thought you told me you were at, uh, you know, the cast of cause, zombiegirls.com and and T Republic and Patreon zombie girls. Am I wrong? Like, tell me more, Rachel. Well, you can find me on the zombie girls podcast where we talk about four movies from a feminist perspective. You can find me on more deadly where we review horror films that are directed by women. We actually have a really great interview coming out this week with uh, Jill Gibbergizian who is the director of The Stylist. Um, You can find me on Stream Queens. We review horror films we stream on the internet and the ongoing Saw crossover with Here's Johnny. We're recording our very last episode of the crossover on on, uh, Thursday where we'll be reviewing Spiral, the the final question mark Saw movie. Who knows? (laughs) Is that Um, that the newest one? Yeah, that's the new one with Chris Rock in it. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. Is it yep. uh, I'll ask later. I want to know. I want the skinny. Okay, I'll, the, I'll give you. I'll give saw you. Blade. I'll, mm, yeah, there you go. Yep, that's where you can find me on the internet. All right, DJ, unless people are sticking around for the extended episode, 
What upsetting thing are you going to say to take us out today? <laughs> well, uh, if you have a relative diet, uh, honestly, I would recommend cremation. Oh, my God. Um, oh my save God. those ashes, and oh the next God. time you have an uppity aunt, you need to slap them in her face and tell her that she is cursed and will wear that mark for life. Um, this will get you street cred in the cast of Cog Gang and probably a jail sentence. So don't actually do that. Good night. Bye, everybody. Isn't that unsanitary? I think it might be unsanitary. I don't, yeah, I don't think you're supposed to put cremains on people's faces. I don't know, but I don't think so. Definitely not salt pepper shakers, FYI. Gross. No reason. No reason. Good night. I guess we'll save that for the bonus episode. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for listening. And to my co-host, DJ, for making me laugh and for indulging all of my tinfoil hat conspiracies. Production on this episode was done by yours truly. Our theme song for the show was created by DJ.